You're listening to the Grace City Boston podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit our website at gracecityboston.com or follow us on social media at Grace City Boston. Now, let's get to the sermon. Hey, good morning. Uh, so glad to have you here. If I, if I don't know you, my name is Brian. I am the... This is weird. My name is Brian. I am uh, the lead pastor uh, here. Just a couple of things on the uh, the the front end, and Haley mentioned it, but um, uh, we're kind of progressing more into kind of normal schedule, normal kind of uh, rhythm, and in which means uh, people are going to be just like coming into the city in massive waves and amounts. And so let let me just say. Like I'm fully aware of, and I've, I've mentioned this before, but I'm fully aware of the awkward nature of our room. Uh, people are hitting their heads on the lamps. Like that's just, just kind of where we're at, right? So if you want to be here, like you have to take a legitimate effort to be here. Like that's just not, you can't get in the door. You can't, you, you know what I mean? Like we're just, this is what we're doing. So <clears throat> I say all that to say, uh, be patient with us um, as we're kind of working the process and figuring out how do we continue to, to grow and do what we need to do and find the space we need to be in. Uh, and the second thing I say to that um, is, uh, Haley mentioned it, but um, the card on your chair, like some of you just need to, like, especially if you've been going here a while, like you just need to like join a team. You just need to like step up and, and you're like, I don't hold babies because I could drop them. I get that. I don't, we don't want you holding babies, but maybe you can hold a door right? You can't drop a door. And so a door doesn't cry or poop. And so maybe for you, that's just where you're at. And so if you're here and you're like, would love to get connected, scan the card, uh, they'll get in contact with you and, um, and then go from, from there. Is that good for everybody? Okay, cool. Is Emma and Eli? Okay. Jenna Henley says hello. I think that's okay. All right. So, um, okay, great. Sorry. I, I, that's such an unprofessional thing to do. All right. We are in a series called Everyday Faithfulness, uh, and we're, so we're walking through the book of, of Ruth. Um, now, here's what um, I say with a ton of shame, right? I, so I've never, I've, here's what I've realized. I've not spent a lot of time in the book of Ruth. Uh, it's, it's just not something that I've really studied and, and kind of been in and, and kind of thought through. And, and I was talking to my wife, and she's like, yeah, it's because you're a white male. And so I received that. I received that rebuke. Fully receive it. Um, and I was like, man, this is such a rich like book, like I'm, I'm recognizing the fact that I've missed a significant part of my Christian discipleship because I've not been in uh, the book of Ruth. And so we started last week into Ruth uh, chapter one, and now we're into to Ruth chapter two. Uh, I heard a story about Benjamin Franklin. So um, basically Benjamin Franklin was in Paris and uh, he was meeting with a group called the Infidels Club. And so the Infidels Club is basically a, a group of uh, philosophers and uh, intellectual people who um, they love to look at kind of ancient manuscripts, literary works, and they kind of talk about um, these kind of various things. But they're also a group of people who, who have a great displeasure for God. And so the story goes that um, Benjamin Franklin just thought it would be funny to uh, to bring forward and basically said, hey, I've got an ancient manuscript I would love to bring to, to the group. And, and so it was the book of Ruth, but he changed the names from Ruth and Naomi, and he kind of hid that it wasn't a story about God. And so the story goes that he read it to them and, uh, and their immediate response was like, what, a, what an incredibly touching story that you just told. Like, that was a remarkable story. Uh, please, please, like, tell us where you found this story. This is an amazing story of, of love and devotion and loyalty towards one another. And then, and then the story goes that, um, that Benjamin Franklin, like, revealed it to their, to their much disproval that, that that story was from the Bible. Now, I don't know if that story was true. But that's a great way to open my sermon. I don't know that that actually happened. Uh, now, the story, go, it was on the internet, so I'm sure it's true. But I, 
it, it goes without saying um, that the the story of Ruth, if you've not been in it long or, or really studied it much, really is an incredible story of um, loyalty and love um, and remarkable courage, both for um, men and women um, that we're in. Okay, so let's play a little bit of catch up from last week, just in case you weren't here. Uh, so last week we started the the series, and and really the book of Ruth starts with a patriarch named Elimelech. Now Elimelech, what the story tells us, um, is that there was a famine in the land. This was in the time of Judges, and there was a famine in the land, and so Elimelech decides to leave the land that God has given his people, that he's promised to them, and has now decided to go into the land of Moab. Now Moab uh, historically were enemies of God. So they were a a hated people um, of God. This was not uh, a move from the promised land to uh, Moab that God would have approved or would have been happy with. Now, the consequences of this move is what you see in Ruth 1 uh, is essentially that Elimelech dies. uh, So the patriarch of the family dies. Uh, Elimelech uh, and Naomi have two sons. Uh, Both of those sons uh, have, have died now. We don't know the details of how they died. And and basically the story leaves us in Ruth chapter one with Naomi, who's the matriarch of the family, and her two uh, her two daughters in law, right? Which can you imagine that a mom and two daughters in law? Like how's this going to go? And so th- this is kind of Ruth chapter one uh, leaves us with this picture of this um, mom who's a mother in law to these two women. Now what Ruth says to them is she says like go. There's no future for you. I'm going back to Bethlehem. I, I've heard that God's caring for His people. The famine's over. I'm going to head back. And and so please don't go with me. Like it's not going to be good for you. It won't be helpful for you. Just just leave. Naomi is is motivated by her love for them, so much so that that we talked about last week that it really Naomi's love is what turns Ruth to to follow and worship Yahweh. She's like whatever you have, whatever whatever God has invoked this response in you, I want. Right. That was Ruth. And so one listened, one went away, uh, and then Ruth was like, No, you got me. I'm I'm with you. And so let's pick it up. Ruth chapter one. At the, here's the last verse in verse 22. It says, uh, Ruth 1, 22, it says, so Naomi, uh, so Naomi came back from the territory of Moab with her daughter-in-law, Ruth, the Moabitess, and they arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now we're getting all these details for a reason that we'll get into in a second, but it says they come back and the barley harvest is happening. So they're, now they're back in Bethlehem, back in the land that God has um, promised. Ruth chapter two, verse one. It says, so now, uh, now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side. He was a prominent man of noble character from Elimelech's family, and his uh, name was Boaz. Okay, so our two primary uh, individuals and characters in this, in Ruth chapter 2, are going to be Ruth and a guy named uh, Boaz. And so Naomi's going to kind of press to the side. Uh, she'll take a more prominent stance as we go throughout the book. But for this morning, it's going to be pre- predominantly focused on Naomi and uh, Boaz. And so there's three things I want to look at. I'll give them to you on the front end, and then we can kind of talk them out. Uh, the first thing I want to look at the character of Ruth. So the first thing I want to kind of survey is the character of this remarkable individual who um, the book is named after, and so is my grandmother. Uh, number two, uh, the number two, the, the second thing I want to look at is what I call the integrated life of Boaz. The integrated life of Boaz. And then thirdly, I want to look at the source of Ruth's hope. So Ruth is going to survey her situation. She's going to say, why am I experiencing this favor? And it causes you to think like, okay, what causes her to continue to push forward? 
like this is incredible. And so we'll look at essentially look at the source of Ruth's hope. Okay, so the first thing is look at the character of Ruth. So Ruth uh, chapter two, two and three, um, it'll be on the screen or you can turn there if you have a Bible with you. Um, it says this, Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, said to her mother-in-law, will you let me go into the fields and gather fallen grain behind someone with whom I find favor? Naomi answered her, go ahead, my daughter. So Ruth left and entered the field to gather grain behind the harvester. So here's what we're going to see. So the series is entitled Everyday Faithfulness. And so it's is really motivated by this idea that as a people of God called into the way of Jesus, um, what that looks like is just every day making a decision to either take God at his word or not, to either determine and decide that God can be trusted or he can't be trusted. That's what it means to follow the way of Jesus, to be faithful in the way of Jesus is to say, yes, I trust you, God, or no, I don't. And the evidence of that is how we, how we live, is it not? Like that is the evidence. We can have intellectual, we can say all that we want, but the evidence is ultimately um, how we see that play out. And so what we're gonna see is what becomes really apparent and which is remarkable is Ruth, despite all the things that have happened to her, she's in an enemy territory, she's lost her husband, um, she is, has found herself in a place in, in disoriented in the place that she's in is not paralyzed by her circumstances. Like she's not. Like she actually is gonna take some pretty incredible steps to ensure that her mother-in-law, Naomi, is taken care of. So three things about the character of Ruth, um, and then we'll, we'll dive into this idea of Boaz. Here's the first thing that we see. Uh, the first thing that we see is that, that Ruth just takes incredible initiative over taking care of Naomi. She just decides like, hey, I see her, I survey our situation. I see that we're not in a good place. I'm, I'm going to respond. Like, I'm going to do it. Motivated by my love for you, motivated by my love for God and Yahweh, I, I'm going to uh, go. I'm, I'm going to go do this. Like, I'm, I'm, for whatever, like, we can just assume that Naomi is probably paralyzed. Like, she's probably bitter and, and, and mourning. Like, she is, is not in a place to, to take care of them. And, and Rusa says, okay, I'm going to do it. Uh, I'm going to go. That's the first thing that we see. The second thing that we see is Ruth's humility. Uh, Ruth chapter 2, 6 and 7. Um, so Boaz shows up and he's basically like, who is this, this servant in the field who is following from behind? And this is what the servants say. This is how they describe Ruth. Verse 6. It says, the servant answered, she is a young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the territory of Moab. She asked, will you let me gather fallen grain among the bundles behind the harvesters? And so she came and she's been on her feet since early morning, except that she rested a little while in the shelter. So the, the second thing that we see um, is this remarkable humility of Ruth. Like she's not demanding a handout. She's not saying, hey, you owe this to me or, or I need to receive this or take this. She's saying, hey, do you mind if I fall in, in, in behind the harvesters and take whatever is left on the ground? Would that be, would that be possible? This was the posture that she is taking and approaching in this particular place. Now there's a, actually a, um, a Hebrew law in place that we'll look at in a bit. Uh, but she's just like, hey, I won't be in the way, can I let me do this? Uh, the third thing that we see um, is we essentially see her like industry. We see an incredible, an incredible uh, work ethic from her. So the text gives us some detail here. Um, if you'll notice in verse seven, uh, it says in Ruth chapter two, 17, it says, so Ruth gathered grain in the field until evening and she beat out what she had gathered until it was about 26 quarts of barley. And then in Ruth 2, verse 7, uh, 
when they're describing her, it says that she came and has been on her feet since early morning. It said that she rested a little in the shelter. Now, why all the detail from the, the biblical author? Like, why is um, this author giving us this? Like, 26 quarts of barley. Like, I wouldn't know 26 quarts of barley if it, like, you know what I mean? I wouldn't know one quart of barley. I wouldn't know barley. Right. I just wouldn't I just wouldn't even know what is barley and what is not barley. But for some reason, uh, they're giving us detail and saying this is how much that she gathers. So what most commentators would say is based on this fact that she she uh, harvested this much barley and based on the fact that um, in Ruth two, verse twenty three, it says um, that Ruth stayed close to Boaz, female servants and gathered grain until the barley and the wheat harvest were finished. Now, remember Ruth chapter 2, verse 1, it says they came during the beginning of barley season. Remember, we got that detail. And so what most commentators would say is that at the rate at which she was moving, and if she did it all season, that, that she would essentially gather enough food for two women for two-thirds of the year. It's incredible. And so we're seeing, again, we're seeing this remarkable um, character coming from, uh, coming from Ruth, coming from uh, essentially a what would be considered an enemy of God's people, now loving and caring for Naomi, who's a part of God's people in Naomi's land. It's an, it's an, amazing, um, it's an amazing thing that we're seeing uh, that, that's happening here. Now, I, I, I want to say this. So we are going to talk about Ruth, and we already have, and we're going to talk about Boaz, but I would be doing God a disservice. I would be doing ourselves a disservice um, if I didn't at least draw our attention to the fact, and we talked about this last week. So last week we said that one of the gifts that the book of Ruth gives us is this idea that regardless of what's going on in, on the surface, that, that God is always working underneath the surface. Like God is doing a thousand different things underneath the surface. And so your circumstances can be dire, things can be falling apart, like job loss, death, like all of these things. These are all realities of being humans and living. But the book of Ruth, the, the, the real gift that it gives us is it shows us through the narrative, both implied and explicit, that God is always at work, that God is always doing something. Uh, where do we see this? So Ruth chapter 2, verse 3, um, it says this in verse 3. So Ruth left, and she entered the field to gather grain behind the harvesters. We've seen that. And then the author says, listen to what he says. She happened to be in the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was from Elimelech's family. Now, we mentioned last week that this was actually a dangerous thing for Ruth to do. Now, we know it was dangerous because Boaz says to her, stay with my harvesters, because if you go somewhere else, you could be hurt. We know that Naomi says to her, stay with Boaz's harvesters, stay close to his female servants, because if you're somewhere else, you could be hurt. This was a danger. She's a female. Uh, she's a Moabite. And so this could be uh, dangerous. Now, here, here's the reality. Uh, Ruth did not set out. And it wasn't like she came upon uh, Boaz's field and it was like, the field of Boaz, right? Like strawberry picking in October. You know what I mean? It, that's not the situation. Like it was just these fields of harvest that, that are happening and, and she ends up at Boaz's field. Now, the, the author in verse three says that she happened. Now, the literal translation of that is her chance chanced upon. Her chance chanced upon. Or a, a modern day um, uh, 
rendering of that would be by stroke of luck. By stroke of luck, Ruth ended up on Boaz's field. Now, what's fascinating is we know that the Israelites and the authors of the New Testament didn't believe in luck. Like it, it wasn't a thing that they actually believed in. What we can best understand is that the author of, of Ruth is, is essentially using a literary device as a, the narrator of this story to draw our attention to the fact that Ruth has found herself in the field of Boaz. It, it's almost like the author is saying, when, when the author says, by chance, she, she ended up, it's almost like the author is forcing the reader to kind of sit up and think, wait a second, is this really by chance? Like, did she just happen to stumble into Boaz's field? Like, the, the, the narrator is, is forcing our brain and trying to kick us into this idea of like, wait, something else is going on here. Something else is happening. And that something else is God working underneath the surface the whole time, working in his sovereignty for their good, even, even when they don't see it or realize it, even, even when they don't recognize it. Okay, so we see um, that now she's in um, Boaz's field. Now, here's what Ruth's going to do um, in the story. She's essentially going to say, why, is, why are all these good things happening? Like, why is this happening to me? Like, why, why am I receiving this type of kindness, right? Now, if you look back at Ruth's story, just that response is amazing. You know, like all of us, if we would have experienced the life Ruth would have experienced, it, I, I don't, my response wouldn't have been, why is the Lord being so kind you know, to me? Like, why am I receiving this? Um, but this is her. This is her posture. This is her response. Uh, two things that I think uh, help answer why this is happening for Ruth and why she's receiving this. Uh, the the first one is is primarily focused on Boaz. And so the first thing we looked at is the character of Ruth. The second thing I want to look at is what I call the the integrated life of Boaz. Um, the integrated life. So there's an Israelite law and understanding uh, a commandment that we've come to understand as the quartet of the vulnerable. So the quartet of the vulnerable is basically this idea that God has commanded the Israelites to care for the widow, the orphan, the alien, and the poor. The widow, the orphan, the alien, and the poor. We, we know this from the Old Testament. We see this. So in Exodus twenty two twenty one, it says, you must not exploit a resident alien or oppress him since you were resident aliens in the land of Egypt. Exodus 22, 22 and 23, if you kick down, it says, you must not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them, there will no doubt cry to me and I will certainly hear their cry. Leviticus 19, 10. Do not strip your vineyard bare or gather its fallen grapes, but leave them for the poor and the resident alien. I am the Lord your God. See how he invokes uh, who he is, Yahweh. Leviticus 23, 22, this actually uh, speaks directly to what is happening here in our narrative. When you reap the harvest of your land, you're not to reap all the way to the edge of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest, but you're to leave them for the poor and the resident alien. I am the Lord your God. Again, he's invoking Yahweh. He's invoking the fact that he is Lord. Deuteronomy 24, 14. Do not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether one of your Israelite brothers or one of the resident aliens in the town of your land. We could go on and on and on and on and on again uh, in the Old Testament. Here's the point. The point is, historically and biblically, God has always cared for the marginalized. Always. The widow, the poor, the orphan, and the alien. He's always cared for those on the margins. And he's always commanded his people to care for those on the margin. Like the, the, 
it is not default within our nature to care and love for people, right? Like the 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 current kind of um, uh, place that we're in, even the current kind of justice movement that we're in, in all these various ways, is a distinctly Christian ethic. That was not a Greco-Roman ethic. It's a Christian ethic. It's a way of Jesus that we're to care for those on the marginalized. We're to care for those who um, uh, lack power and don't don't have that power. And and so what we know and what we come to understand is that Boaz is simply following the commands of God. Like he's following the heart of God. He's motivated by the heart of God when he sees uh, Ruth. This is what is moving. Now, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, Ruth connects all of those boxes. She's poor. She's a widow. She's an alien. And she's an orphan. She's without parents. She's in a place where she's checking all of these boxes. And so Boaz is going to respond. Now, here's what's fascinating uh, is that Boaz, if you, when you look at the story, he's actually going to go above and beyond what he, what he was required to do. Like he is going to be so propelled by the love of God that he, he's going to do more than just allow her to glean from the harvest, what the, what the law says. Like he could have, he could have just said, Hey, glean. You, yes, you're free to glean, uh, whatever's left over, take it and you're good to go. And that he could have ended his interactions there and it could have been, it could have been done but he's actually gonna to ratchet up uh, a few different levels in his kindness towards her. And, and so I just wanna say this. So when we are a people propelled by the love of God towards the marginalized, we're not to be a people who just do the bare minimum. Like we're not, we're not to be a people who just kinda like, ah, oh, I kinda did that thing and now I feel good. Like I kinda just, you know, I've kinda, okay, now, okay, now I've done that. I've given a little bit there or I've kind of done that thing or, you know, I've dropped that food off so now I feel great. Can I go do my thing? We're, that's not, people propelled by the love of God, uh, they don't just do the minimum required. They're, they're, again, motivated by the love of God, by love of neighbor and by people. Look, look what Boaz does here. This is an extravagant type of kindness, what the Bible calls has said, which we'll look at in a second. Um, Ruth chapter 2, 14 and 16. It says, at mealtime, Boaz told her, come over here and have some bread and dip it in vinegar sauce. We love bread and vinegar sauce in my house. All right, here we go. So she sat beside the harvesters. Anyone else? Okay, all right. She sat beside the harvesters and offered her roasted grain, right? Mm. All right, so she ate. Now, look, listen to what the story says. It says that she ate and was satisfied and had some left over. She actually had more than she could eat. Verse 15. It says, when she got up to gather grain, it says, Boaz ordered his young men, let her, this is incredible, let her even gather grain among the bundles and do not humiliate her. So don't, don't uh, make fun of her. Don't catcall her. Don't bother her. Leave her alone, verse 16. And then he says, pull out some stocks from the bundles for her and leave them for her to gather and don't rebuke her. Okay, Boaz could have, his response could have just been gather the grain and that would have been fine. But now look what he's doing. Now he's saying, no, pull up to my table. Come eat with me. See the intimacy in this. He's saying, come like eat with me, be a part of like with me, sit in close proximity to me. And then gives her so much more food that she can eat with the text tells us at the end of Ruth chapter two, that she actually takes the leftovers to Naomi for Naomi to eat. 
And then he grants her rights that normally the poor, um, the, those who were poor on the margins that were gleaning from the harvest wouldn't even have the rights to. And so he says, when you're going, actually pull out the good and leave it for her. Remarkable, remarkable amount of love and care for Ruth and for uh, Naomi. Now remember, um, remember the time when this is taking place. So this is taking place, what Ruth 1 tells us, is it's taking place during the time of the judges. Now, if you know anything about the time of the judges, this is historically and biblically not a time where the Israelites are a picture of faithfulness. Like it, it, the, the Israelites in the book of Judges display a remarkable uh, amount of resiliency and disobedience. Like it's actually remarkable. <laughs> Next level disobedience to God. This is the time of Judges. And yet in the time of Judges, Boaz says, no, no, I'm going to fully integrate my life and my faith. Like my life is my life with God. Like that's my life. Not, not two separate things, uh, but I, I'm going to, right? And we see this throughout the Christian history, right? Like we can basically split Christian history with those who believed God and trusted God at his word and those who didn't. We can. And Boaz says, no, I'm fully integrating both my faith and my life. Like these things are actually um, working together. They're not separate. They're, they're, they're working together. But Boaz, what the, the, the scriptures tell us, that, that Boaz essentially becomes a, a channel of grace for Ruth and Naomi because he's really just following the heart of God. He's motivated by the, the heart of God. We, we see how saturated life with God is for Boaz, even in his, in his interaction with his workers. Look at Ruth chapter two, verse four. It says, later when Boaz arrived from Bethlehem, he said to his harvesters, the Lord be with you and the Lord bless you, they replied. So like even in his greetings to his farmers, it's a greeting of God. This is how deeply embedded life with God is in the life of Boaz. There's like, that's the first thing that he says. And their first response to him is that same type of response. This is how deeply it is ingrained um, into that. Now, the further you're going to get into the book of Ruth, the, f the more radical the steps are going to be that Boaz is going to take. And, and there can be this tendency in like Christian faith where uh, we only kind of highlight like the radical things, right? And you're like, dude, I'm trying to like get through, you know, business school or med school, or I'm trying to, you know, kind of do my job right now and I can't breathe. Um, and so like, so there can be a tendency where we think about that and we're like, uh, you know, take these radical steps. But I, I do just want to highlight the fact he's going to do that. But I want to highlight the fact that even in his like daily interactions, he's integrated his faith uh, of who he is. Now there, there's a very real reality because I, um, because I talked to, to you, you all about it, but there, there's very much this thought of there's no way I can be a Christian and get ahead in business. Like it's not possible. Yeah, there's Chick-fil-A. Mm. But, but there's this thought of like, no, no, my faith is here. It's over here in this area of my life. And then business is over here. 
Like there's a very kind of real kind of thought for some of you where you're like, okay, here is my faith, like God's stuff. And then my kind of intellectual pursuit of, of knowledge and um, just, just those things are over here. They're separate things. Like they're, they're polar opposites, like education and science and intellectual pursuit and faith. They're separate things. You can't integrate these things, right? We say well, that's now we don't have to get into every Ivy League school except for one was founded by Christians. All right. So but but there's that reality, right? For some of you, you're like, OK, I a godly relationship isn't possible. So I got my faith and this dude's not quite lined up, but maybe he will one day. It's like, here's my faith, but here's this or I can't I can't be a follower of Christ living in the way of Jesus and climb up the social ladder that I need to climb up. Like, it's not possible. Everyone else is cutting corners. Everyone else is destroying people's reputation to the benefit of their reputation. And, and I'm, I'm surveying, and it seems as if that's the way to get ahead. Can't have a life integrated with faith and finances. It just doesn't work that way. And so for some of you, it's like, here's church life, faith life, and here's everything else. Like, why make it awkward in the workplace by talking about your faith? That's my thing. You do your thing. Now, I think there's a way to do that that's like healthy and good and mature and not super awkward and weird. And, and I would love for you to not be super awkward and weird in your workplace because it just doesn't help any of us. Um, but the, the, the book of Ruth and the life of Boaz is showing for us and highlighting for us an integrated life. That, that faith and life are to be connected and brought together. Now, one of the things that we're doing, so here's what we're doing, because I've been thinking about this idea of integrated faith a lot. So I actually met this past week with um, one of the leaders in our church. And so here's what we're about to start. I don't know if I've talked about this before, but maybe I have or maybe I haven't. So we're basically in the process of working through, like, how do we gather people in similar fields so if you're in healthcare or finance or education or tech or biotech or whatever, real estate, whatever your, your, your thing is, Jimmy John's. All right, so wherever you're at on that spectrum, I love me some Jimmy John's Beach Club. Okay, so how do we get people together in their field and address the unique challenges of being a Christian in that field? Because that's what I'm hearing, right, from people in healthcare and finance. And it's like, okay, yeah, but here's what I got going on. And so we're kind of in the process of a responsibility of a church. I think individually we're responsible where we can kind of get in a room and say, okay, here's everyone in healthcare. And, and now let's talk about what it means to be a Christian in healthcare. What are the unique challenges of doing that? Now we may all walk out of there with more questions and more confusion than, than we did when we walked in, right? That may be a real reality, but we're starting somewhere. And we're saying, hey, we want to have fully integrated lives. We can answer for one another and help one another. Okay, so we see the integrated life of Boaz. We see the character of Ruth. Um, I, I want to just briefly kind of mention and comment on this word, this word called hesed. We've talked about it a bit, but this Hebrew word for hesed, it means kindness. It means covenantal loyalty. It means faithfulness. It means mercy. It means goodness. It means love. It means compassion. And it's fundamentally an action. It's an action that you do. And it's someone who's in a superior position who is responding to someone in an inferior position. So it's not something they have to do, but it's something they've chose to do. 
And we see this word hesed all throughout the, the book of Ruth. This is what, um, this is what uh, Ruth says uh, about Boaz in verse 20 when she says, May the Lord bless him because he has not abandoned his kindness, hesed, to the living or to the dead. And so what we see actually in Ruth 2 is that Ruth is practicing hesed to Naomi and Boaz is practicing hesed to Ruth. They're both practicing hesed. Now, the thing that I just want to kind of just formulate in a second, because I think it's important to highlight Boaz and Ruth um, in this, but, but ultimately the arc of the biblical story is, is Yahweh is the one who practices hesed. So if you, if you were to look in the Old Testament, two-thirds of the word of hesed, this loyalty, love, kindness, compassion, is actually God directed at people two-thirds of the time. It's this idea that, that God is now practicing love and commitment towards the people. Like, like we can see in this kind of literary work, Boaz and Ruth are just exampling who God is for humanity. By his head. Okay, third thing, and then I'll end. What's the source of Ruth's hope? Now she's going to ask the question, why is all this happening to me? She's just going to ask him, uh, Ruth 2, verse 10. It says, she fell face down. She bowed to the ground, again, humility, and said to him, why have I found favor with you so that you notice me, although I am a foreigner? So this is who I am. Look at Boaz's answer. It gives us insight. Verse 11. It says, Boaz answered her, everything that you've done for your mother-in-law since your husband's death has been fully reported to me. How you left your father and mother in your native land and how you came to a people you did not previously know. May the Lord reward you for what you've done and may you receive a full reward from the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. So here's what Boaz says. He, he recognizes the fact that she is practicing faithfulness and obedience to Naomi, but he doesn't say that is why she is receiving the kindness. He just says, I see it. I, I've heard about it. I've heard that this is what you're doing. The, the weight of the text is actually on the fact that Ruth has sought refuge in God. That's where the text is leading us um, at, at the end. We see at the end of that verse, um, of, in verse 12, it says, may the Lord reward you for what you have done. May you receive a full reward from the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. Now, this is uh, very similar language to the psalmist, Psalm 57.1. The psalmist writes, be gracious to me, God, be gracious to me, for I take refuge in you. I will seek refuge in the shadow of your wings until danger passes. Very similar type of language. This, this picture, this idea of, a, of, a, um, of, of small birds kind of finding their shelter in, in their, their mom, in the wings of their mom. And, and what it's trying to lead us to is that, that Ruth is receiving this kindness, receiving this care, not because she has incredible initiative, which she does, not because she's an incredible worker, which she is, not because she has a tremendous amount of humility. She's receiving this kindness because she sought refuge in Yahweh. It is what has moved her into this land is what has moved her to be compassionate, to practice said love towards Naomi, that she's finding refuge in God. John Piper says it this way. He's an author. He's a pastor. He says that she has set her heart on God for hope and joy. 
When a person does that, God's honor is at stake and he will be merciful. If you plead God's value as a source of your hope, instead of pleading your value as a source of God's hope, then in his unwavering commitment to his own, uh, then his unwavering commitment to his own value engages all of his heart for your protection and joy. To live by faith is to say, God, I trust you at your word. I trust you. This is what it means to be a people who live by faith. She is, Ruth is responding completely as an act of faith by going out. She has no idea what she's going to run into. No idea. But she has determined and she's decided that Yahweh can be trusted. This is what has moved her. That's what she's doing. So the question begs itself, just thinking about this, right? Over this week, just been sitting in it. The, the question begs itself, like, what, what is it? What courageous act is God calling you to? Like, what is he asking you to trust him in? What is he saying to you? Hey, if you take me at my word, I need you to do this. I'm calling you into this action. I'm calling you into this movement. This is what I want you to do. Find me as your place of refuge. It, this is essentially the crux and foundation of the gospel, right? There's an interaction in Matthew 23 where Jesus actually slams the religious elite for not taking their refuge in him. This is what he says. Uh, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, uh, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I've wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. He says, see, your house is left desolate. Um, God's not looking for courageous men and women, although he values courage. God's not looking for men and women with high value, although he values, or with high vision, although he values high vision. God's not looking for men and women with incredible ability, with incredible talent, with incredible whatever kind of uh, abilities to, to climb whatever ladders, to look a certain way. God's not looking primarily for those things. He's looking for people who come to him as a place of refuge. Who recognize and say, hey, God, without you, without Jesus, I would be hopeless. I would be lost. I would be set in my sin. Look, look at the ending here. This is beautiful. Verse 20 of Ruth 2. It says, then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may the Lord bless him because he has not abandoned his kindness to the living or to the dead. And it says, Naomi continued, this man is a close relative. He is one of our family redeemers. Here's what Naomi knew about Boaz. And this gives us a pointer. We'll talk about it next week. She knew that Boaz has the authority and the resources to care for them. Like she, when she says he's a family redeemer, we'll get into all that next week. She's recognizing that he has the resources and the ability to help them. So we have ending of Ruth two. We have a man, we have two women, Ruth and Naomi, whose hope is now finding its landing place in a man who has the authority and the resources to care for them. Do you see that? Like, do you see the, the pointer there? Like we are a people, we're a people who live day in and day out saying that I've, I've 
found my refuge in God. I found it in Jesus. Um, Paul in 1 Timothy 1.1, I love how he begins this, and, uh, and then I'll pray. I've said that a thousand times, but that's what we do when we're preaching. All right, 1 Timothy 1.1, 1, 1, this is what he says. Paul, an apostle of Christ, Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, our hope. Our hope. 